I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. If you're anything like me, when you're gardening, you spend a lot of time staring at the ground as you weed, sow or hoe. But it's time to give your back a rest as we look up in today's show with an ode to the larger side of the plant world. Botanist James Armitage will be transporting us to the world of a Jurassic-looking gunnera. And garden author Ben Dark takes us on a voyage from Britain to Bogota through the taxonomy of the tree. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. But first, as we enter October, we're not only greeted by falling autumn leaves, but also a whole raft of new jobs to be getting on with in the garden. To ensure you're not forgetting anything fundamental, we caught up with an expert horticulturist to jog our memories on what to be getting on with in the month ahead. Hello, my name's Matthew Oliver. I'm the horticulturist at RHS Garden Hyde Hall, and specifically I work in the Global Growth Vegetable Garden, so I spend all of my time growing fruit and veg. Now we're into October, it's quite a busy time in the veg garden and in the gardening world in general. There's lots to do as the main growing season is coming to an end, so you've got all the tidying up and finishing up from that to do, but it's also, although it's, it's only autumn, in the gardening world, it's the actually, really, it's the start of the next growing season. We're already beginning to think and prepare for next year. So there's lots to be getting on with. This time of year, personally, I would be beginning to clear some of the beds in the veg garden, the summer crops that are coming to an end. I would either, once beds are clear of the summer crops, you've then got numerous different options. Sometimes I would sow a green manure, so an overwintering green manure, so the bed would be covered with leafy growth through the winter months. That's a good way to prevent things like soil erosion by the wind and the rain. It prevent nutrient leaching, sort of the rain washing out nutrient from the soil over the winter months. And green manures are a good way of often, depending on what species you use, they're a good way of adding fertility back to the ground. So the most common one I use, it's tough as old boots and it'll survive the harsh hide hall winds, is one called grazing rye. It's kale cereal. It looks like wheat, basically. October is about the time to sow that because it's still got enough time to germinate and establish and form 
a decent sized plant to cover the top of the soil before the real cold weather sets in. So that's the one I do. You could do field beans, which are basically a broad bean. Some of the vetches and tares you could do, and they're quite good because they're legumes. They're in the pea and bean family, and they have this wonderful thing where they can draw nitrogen out of the atmosphere and fix it on nodules at their roots. So when you then dig that crop in in the spring, that nitrogen on the root nodules will break down and you're adding high nitrogen fertility, which is what you want for early spring next year. So you've got a couple of options. One thing I do a lot of, which I know is not as common now, but I'm still keen on digging over the veg beds. I like to turn in, dig in organic matter in the autumn. For us, that is a green waste compost that we make on site. I'll either put it out on the beds in the autumn and dig it in. Quite often, I'll put it down in the spring, use it as a mulch through the growing season and then dig it in. The reason I like to do that is I like to bury the organic matter so it's down low where next year's crop's going to need it. I like to leave the soil exposed to winter weather. It helps break down some of the heavy clay we've got at Hyde Hall through that freeze and thaw action. And also think leaving the soil exposed to the weather does help kill off some soil-borne pest, mainly slugs and snails. The birds are coming along and pick the eggs off. So there's still sound practical reasons for doing it. But if you can't dig or don't want to dig and want to go down the no-dig route, then in the autumn you can just mulch all of your veg beds with garden compost and just leave it and let the worms do the work for you, drawing that organic matter down into the ground. So there's three options of how to manage your growing space in the autumn. And then if you wanted to sow some crops at that time of year, there's a range of things you can do. Getting into the time when you would be planting garlic sets, you could sow some overwintering peas, overwintering broad beans. The best variety for that is Aquaduncia claudia you could do. You could be sowing oriental salad leaves again at that time of year. So pak choys, mustard leaf, those kind of things. We do a lot of that. Um, if you do that outside, you'll be picking off them in the early winter months. Through January and February, they might slow down completely, but they'll survive and then start picking off of them again February, March time as, as it begins to warm up and they start growing again. Yeah, it's a busy time of year, really busy time of year. I suppose that's in a nutshell what I'd get up to. Thanks for the tips, Matthew. Matthew mentioned digging. Digging is an excellent way of getting rid of the weeds by burying them, mixing manure into the soil, and also if you need to add lime, mixing that into the soil as well to correct any acidity. Nowadays, we tend not to dig so much because in digging you cause damage to the soil organisms, particularly the fungi. The fungi secrete lots of biological materials that bind the soil together into little lumps called peds. The peds hold water and nutrients and the plant roots grow round the peds and suck the moisture out. However, every garden's different. 
and every gardener has their own methods and so Matthew likes to dig and he gets very good results from it so it's not a rule of the Medes and Persians you can dig or you cannot dig as you see fit if you do dig I would suggest that you try a small plot of no dig in the first instance to see how you get on that's what I did and gradually I've converted almost all my allotment to no dig now and I've found it saves a lot of time and the crops are pretty much the same whether I dig or no dig and it hopefully improves the soil organic matter and locks away a little smidgen of carbon to help with the fight against climate change. So what I'm trying to say is there's no right or wrong way to garden. As long as it works for you, that's great. And I hope Matthew's given you some ideas and some reminders of what to do at this season. Whatever your best intentions in a garden, nature will find a way to improvise. And no one has understood this lesson better than botanist James Armitage, editor of not one, but two RHS magazines, The Plant Review and The Orchid Review. Many years ago, and by pure happenstance, James stumbled upon a plant mystery that has only finally just been solved. I've always been interested in exotic plants and plants that capture the imagination, and Gunnera is certainly one of those. Um, so when I was at Wisley at lunch times, I would go for a little walk round, and I noticed that there were some strange-looking plants amongst the gunners. Now, gunners are an interesting genus. There's some very, very small plants about the size of your thumbnail, but there's also some absolutely colossal plants with leaves, you know, six foot across. And there's two species of those that we see in our gardens, and they were called gunnera tinctoria, and the other one was called gunnera manicata. But I noticed some plants and I thought, I'm not really sure whether that's one thing or the other. And asking myself if we were looking at what we thought we were, two species, Gunnera tinctoria and Gunnera manicata, or whether something more complicated was going on and hybrids were involved. I think one of the really exciting things about working with garden plants as a botanist is that there's just such scope for discovery and finding out new things. We know about a lot of animal hybrids like horses and donkeys and lions and tigers will produce hybrids. There's not really that many of them, but plants, they're a different kettle of fish as it were, and they hybridize quite readily. And especially in gardens when things that be separate in nature are brought together and they will cross with each other. And sometimes that's deliberately, but sometimes they get up to it by themselves without us even realizing. And that's what happened in the case of gunneries. They were introduced separately. One species, Gunnera tinctoria, is from Chile, and that was introduced to Europe in around about 1838. And then this other species, Manicata, was introduced from Brazil in about 1861. And they were definitely growing together, these two species, at a nursery in Ghent, in Belgium, in 1873. And they're wind pollinated, so they were growing side by side, flowering side by side. The wind got up and the pollen from one fertilised the inflorescence of the other plant. And lo and behold, you get little hybrids occurring and the plants grew and they found that some of these plants were actually better behaved and so they selected those ones. But of course, what they were selecting were the hybrid plants, which were a bit hardier than the Brazilian parent. And the name just got adopted for a plant which was half of one species and half of the other. And the parent from which it had come died out. 
the Victorians or people living in the Victorian era had a great love of things novel and things monstrous and strange. And so they would send out plant hunters across the world to collect liberally from the bounties of nature and bring it back to growing gardens. And their eye was always to the strange and the wonderful. And you can imagine as a plant hunter coming across these gigantic rhubarb-like plants and just salivating at the wonder of it all. I think it's very difficult to put yourself in the place of the Victorian gardener when these things started to turn up. I mean, no Google in those days, no wildlife documentaries. And these things would just appear. They must have been like finding dinosaurs for sale or just something magnificently different from anything you had encountered. And the thought that you could actually just grow them in your garden, it must have been mind-blowing. You can see where the rage for gardening came from at that time because it was just another world that you could cultivate. It must have been an exciting time, I think, to be interested in nature and plants. Gunnera tinctoria is actually, in some parts of Britain and Ireland, a weed and a very bad weed. So in County Kerry, where I was in 2007, you could see Gunnera tinctoria growing all over the slopes that even led down to the sea. So you've got this strange mixture of little carnivorous native plants and this Gunnera tinctoria. But Gunnera manicata I had never found a seedling of. And I thought this is very strange that Gunnera tinctoria should be so invasive in a way in the right climate and that Gunnera manicata shouldn't. But of course, now what we realize is that this hybrid it wasn't very fertile. It's almost completely sterile, in fact. So just as with animals, you get sterility between the hybrid progeny. So with some plants, some plants, when you cross them, will retain a lot of fertility, but not in the case of this gunnera. So this hybrid plant is more or less sterile. In dealing with anything, knowledge is all important. And so when it came to making legislation about gunneras and perhaps not making it available to gardeners because of an ecological risk, where you've got to know, are we dealing with the right plants here? And, and so it takes on a, a great legal importance. And there's just the biological importance of, does this hybrid actually occur? The cultural significance of, is this incredible plant that we've been growing since Victorian times actually what we think it is, and then all the ecological, biological data that goes along with that name, is that the correct data? And so if you have reason to believe that maybe we haven't got it right, and maybe we're calling something by the wrong name, and therefore the wrong identity, that needs digging into. I was really pleased that my initial hunch was proved correct, but I can't take the credit for it really because it's a team of RHS botanists who have taken this forward. So what this research proves is that what we've been calling Gunnera manicata for a hundred and more years is in fact this hybrid Gunnera cross cryptica. Cryptic obviously because it's remained secret for so long. It's a plant that we can feel happy growing in our gardens because there seems to be very little chance of it seeding around and becoming an ecological menace in the same way that Gunnera tinctoria has in wet and westerly parts of the country. I think the richness of the gardens that we have in the UK is something that is a little underappreciated. In terms of diversity, they are without match in the world and just all kinds of strange mysteries 
and quirky things and stories involving people and plants and their interactions remain to be told and to be uncovered. So this story about gunners is not unique. Plants cross of their own free will all the time and everywhere you look in gardens there's another story to tell and another mystery to be solved and that's what makes garden botany so very exciting. Thanks to James Armitage. The research that led to this interview was published in September 2022 in the journal British and Irish Botany by RHS botanists Julian Shaw, Dawn Edwards and John David. The full story will appear in the December issue of the Plant Review, written by Julian Shaw. It's also important to note that Gunnera tinctoria is currently on the banned plant list in the UK and is classed as an invasive alien species. If you'd like to grow a garden-sized Gunnera without damaging your local ecosystem, consider giving the miniature species Gunnera magellanica a try. I certainly agree with James that Gunnera is a fine-looking Jurassic sort of plant. You often see children at Wisley running round the Gunnera and they sneak in and they hide underneath the leaves looking like little elves and having a wonderful time. So we certainly wouldn't want to see Gunnera banned completely. It's a wonderful and perhaps underappreciated thing how in our British gardens we have plants from all over the world, a remarkable number of plants. So take a second look at the plants that you see in your garden and perhaps look up and see what part of the world they've come from. It's remarkable how plants can come from all over the world. Now, stretching past the heights of even the greatest gunnera, a plant like no other, trees. Thanks to their great character and stature, trees have throughout history captured people's imagination going from gods to great secret keepers. We caught up with garden author and head gardener Ben Dark to hear more about these magnificent plants that we so often take for granted. Before I became a gardener, I studied history at university and one of the areas I was particularly interested in was the pre-Christian history of the British Isles and even the pre-Roman history. And one of the things that, that came up again and again was the sacred nature of the tree, particularly the yew tree. And we notice in this subject that there are ancient yew trees on the site of many British churches. And what we think is happening is that these trees were planted at places of worship because of their importance to the local people. And the very clever Christians came along and said, well, we're not really going to be doing things that way. We're going to change to this God. But don't worry, you keep the trees there. You still go and do your devotions at the same place. The yew trees are still here. You just say a different name now. And that's how Christianization happened. And it speaks to the huge importance of trees, the hold they've had for millennia over people, not just here, but across the world. I'm not an expert on religion by any means, but if you look at the importance of trees in many, many religions, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, the way that trees are so often at the center of villages and of communal life, they are a special power. And even though they no longer 
remain the, the tallest things in our lives. We have buildings that utterly dwarf them. In our city, trees can be ignored compared to the brickwork almost, but they still do have that special hold in us. I have seen a fair bit of the world, and it's always the trees that I look out for in a new city. It is something that firstly gives you a tell to the character of the place. I love to go to those European cities. I'm in Copenhagen at the moment, but when you go to Vienna, say, and you see how they treat their street trees, how the limes and the plains are so rigidly pollarded, how perfectly neat and ordered they are. And it might not be true, but to me, it gives some indication of the national character. Or you go to Bogota, where I was for a few years, and see their native walnut, see the nogal, and the way that it grows, and the way that it's covered in the epiphytes and trailing moss plants of the region. And you have an instant show, wow, we are, we're in a different place in the world, but there is still that familiarity. It is still part of one of the great tree families. It is still a walnut. I am not too far from home. I'm not living at the, the bottom of the ocean where things are completely alien. This is still a world I can understand with familiar things in it. It's very reassuring to me. There is often a lot of worry about putting a tree into a small front garden. And I can certainly understand that. I do pass gardens where people have put in a, an evergreen that has completely obscured their house and has let itself get away. So there does need to be some measure in the, the selection of the trees, but that is no reason not to have them. Firstly, big things make small spaces seem less boxy, less tiny. It's like in a room, it never seems smaller than when it's completely empty of all its furniture. Put some things in it, give it some corners, and it suddenly starts to look bigger. So don't worry about that. Secondly, there are lots of trees that can be kept under control through the gardener's intervention, either by putting them on a dwarfing rootstock, which means their vigor will be limited, or by using our secateurs and loppers to keep the canopy under control and thus keep the roots manageable. So select something that is going to take a pruning. Many of the evergreens, aside from things like you, won't reshoot from old wood, from heavy prunings, and actually lose a lot of their beauty and a lot of their character when they have the top chopped off, so they become a rhomboid rather than a, than a beautiful, graceful pyramid. So choose something that's going to take a bit of pruning. And remember that there are different heights at which you can have your canopy. Maybe something very small will actually end up taking away more light from the house than something a bit larger. Something that might only reach eight foot in height is going to have all its leaves in front of the front window. Whereas something that has the ability to grow to 20 foot, but can be managed a bit more, can be allowed to flower, to bear leaf between the windows a little bit higher so that you look out past the, the trunk and still receive light into the house. So not necessarily always 
the small tree for a front garden. Sometimes a medium tree and, and a bit of control is the better option. In front gardens that are limited in space, I tend to go for trees that punch twice, as it were, something that will bear spring flowers and have autumn color, or have a glorious display in spring, and then something edible later on. I like to plant crab apples quite often in small gardens, particularly ones like the, the red sentinel that might hold on to their berries for a little bit into the autumn and winter. Having said which, sometimes it's worth just putting in something with an incredible punch, putting in a flowering cherry, something huge and vast and double that is going to give enough beauty over two weeks to last the remaining 50 of the year in your memory. So those are two great choices for trees that do something. My all-time favorite, and it's something that I've mentioned a couple of times, is the magnolia, the classic saucer magnolia. I love it not only for the flowers, which are glorious, but for the buds on the flowers, those fantastic chicory hearts standing straight up on the branches. But I also love it for the smooth grey bark, the way that it is always so elegant all the way through winter, so uncrowded, so uncluttered by itself. And whenever I pass one, even, even if it's in February in the rain, I get a little thrill. Maybe that's because I know what is to come, or maybe it's just because it's an inherently beautiful piece of wood. Those trees that I was remarking on, the most beautiful trees in London, happened because someone went out a long time ago and stuck a sapling in the ground. And I think we should all be doing it. I think what a gift, what an opportunity, what a thing to give gardeners of the future, people like me who are wandering around looking for beautiful things, to give them something so magnificent for relatively little cost. Today or tomorrow, we can go out and start putting some trees in our gardens. And really, there's no reason to delay. Let's get planting this autumn. It's the perfect time to do it. To read more about Ben's experiences, pick up a copy of his book, The Grove, a nature odyssey in 19 and a half front gardens. Autumn is a great time to plant trees. The soil is moist, but not too wet. Later in the winter, it gets very wet, and that can make it difficult to plant trees. But in the autumn, the soil is often just right, depending on how much rain falls. And in the case of evergreen trees, and indeed shrubs, there's still enough warmth in the soil to encourage a bit of root growth that might stand them in good stead if it's dry next spring. Ben recommended crabapple trees and flowering cherries. These are great trees for gardens. They'll suit almost any soil and they'll grow at a hardy throughout Britain. Crabapple trees probably have the edge because the fruits are very ornamental. You get a certain amount of autumn colour and of course you get glorious spring flowers. Cherry trees produce glorious spring flowers which just cannot be matched and many of them will produce a bit of autumn colour too. So they're nearly as good as crabapple trees. I was very privileged as a child. Nearby was an old country house. And as was the fashion in those days, this would be about 200 years ago, the owners planted an arboretum. 
The garden arboretum was planted 200 years ago. I wasn't a child 200 years ago, just to be clear. So you're walking through this forest that is now in the hands of the Forestry Commission, and every so often you come across a great big monkey puzzle tree or a grove of Douglas firs or some glorious and very ancient Lebanon cedars. So it's really nice to see these 200-year-old trees that have been growing in the rich Dorset soil to a vast size. Do let's remember how long it takes trees to grow and how the bigger trees that we see have taken many years, decades or even a hundred years to reach the size they are. And it would be a shame to throw out all that growth, release all that potentially damaging carbon into the atmosphere for any short-term interests. That's a wrap from our skyscraper show. At the moment in my garden, I'm busy harvesting apples and digging potatoes and gathering in a great big collection of pumpkins. Hopefully some of my colleagues at Wisley will take on some of these pumpkins and squash because I've got far too many for one small household to eat. I'm also digging potatoes to make room to plant the overwintered onions and the shallots and the garlic. I have a real problem with garlic because my soil is riddled with white rot disease. However, I have a cunning plan. I'm going to dig a trench and fill it with some lovely loam that I've managed to make by composting some turves that came my way and see if I can at last get a decent crop of garlic. But that's it for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.